0: Welcome back, everybody. This is going to be an exciting episode that we have because we have Neil Bawa, and Neil has one thing that almost nobody else does, and it drives him crazy. And it's starting to drive me crazy. And here's the thing most people make decisions based on what? Their feelings, their heart. And that's a good thing, right? But it's not a great thing. There's actually something called Data. It's spelled D-A-T-A. And uh, data is something that will help you understand and make educated decisions, especially when it comes to real estate investing. So, with that said, Neil, we have a lot to cover today. So, would would you start by sharing a little bit about how you even got into multifamily real estate in the first place?
1: Yeah, sure, Adam. Um, thanks for having me on the show. Um, I'm a technologist. You know, I haven't done a thousand loans. I haven't flipped a hundred homes. I got into real estate actually through my day job in technology. I was running a company. I was the chief operations officer. Company was growing. We needed a new campus uh, for our company, an office campus. And um, as it turned out, I got involved in the process of building that campus. So unlike most people that get into single family by having a uh, you know, one single family rental, that's how most people start. Well, I started in real estate in reverse. My first um, first real estate project was a $4.5 million, 27,000 uh, square foot building that I had to construct from scratch. And so trial by fire, it was uh, terrifying. The, it was a nine-month and three-day project. It was absolutely terrifying. I didn't know anything about real estate, but uh, I had good mentors and I knew how to ask good questions. And it was an incredible learning experience i learned things about room sizes and air conditioning you know flows and fire codes and egress levels and so many other things that one really doesn't understand even if one's doing multifamily syndication i'm pretty sure that there's people that have bought 200 million dollars of real estate that don't know this yet because new construction's slightly different from from you know buying existing property so that's how i got started through my job, but I was still doing my job at that point, And I continued to do my job for the next nine years. But once I realized just how much value there was in real estate, I was hooked. And then I started my personal journey, which went through you know, a lot of single family homes, then a lot of triplexes, then a lot of passive syndications, and then into active syndication.
0: One time, uh, about two months ago, I, I, I've known Neil for a while, but he came to Rod Clef's event and he started to speak about data. And there are so many different pieces of information that really surprised me, and many of them blew my mind. And, and frankly, many of them blew the entire mastermind's minds. And <laughs> when I say that, it's because he, he left us sitting on the edge of our seat He said he was going to speak for 30 minutes. It goes to 35 and we're still like, please don't stop. What about this? What about this, Neil? And so the data that we're going to be talking about is very, very helpful for you as an investor. One interesting thing that I had learned from you, Neil, is that you mentioned that there was a a range of rental per unit rents Mm -hmm. that... Had a higher probability of hitting projections, and if your rents were higher than that, and if your rents were lower than that, you had a more likely scenario of mm-hmm. actually falling short of your pro formas. That's right.
1: What, what is
0: that range? What is that range? Was it 800 to 1000? What was the range?
1: It was 700 to 1000 in most parts of the country, and you have to go a little bit above that if you're in a really expensive part of the country like the San Francisco Bay Area or New York. But 700 dollars to 1000 is the Goldilocks zone of rent. And why is it the Goldilocks zone, right? You might say, well, what about rents higher than that? Why is that bad? But the answer is, what I've found is that the moment you go above that $1,000 in most of the US, your property will not cash flow, even if the pro forma says it will right? One of the things that I'm very passionate about is saying a proforma is just a proforma. Don't take it as truth. It is not the literal truth, especially if it comes from a broker. It's not really the truth. My point is, if a property is at $1,250 of rent and you think that it's going to cash flow, well then understand that 98% of the time it will not, unless you are in New York or the San Francisco Bay Area, it will not and something's wrong. Dig further. That Goldilocks zone is, is very key, but the bottom of the Goldilocks zone is very, very important. A lot of people don't understand this. They, they go basically do simplistic math where they say stuff like, well, one X, right? So if, it, if it's a $100,000 property, I get $1,000 in rent, I'm good. If it's a $50,000 property and I get more than 500 in rent, I'm good. No, you're not. Let's say the rent is $600. Please understand that at $600, the delinquency that that property will experience will be many times higher than an area where the rent is $750. Once you go below $700 in the vast majority of the United States, the people that are living in that area, the people that are living in an um, an area that has median rents below $700,000 are poor. $700. 700 bucks. Yes. 700 bucks. Right. So below $700 the po- people that are living there are, are poor, which is why the delinquency spikes up because they're living paycheck to paycheck. And anytime anything goes wrong, those people do not have $500 in the bank. This is statistically proven. We're not, this is not a social justice po- podcast. so I'm not gonna talk about the 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 sadness that we are the richest country in the world. And I'm telling you to stay away from people that are not able to pay more than $700 in rent. This is a investor forum. And as an investor, especially as somebody that is taking other people's money, beware of going into areas where median rents are below $700. Because you'll look at the math and you'll go, oh, but I'm buying at $50,000 a unit and it's $700 in rent. I couldn't lose. That's 1.4 multiple or whatever it is that that people say, right? The 1% rule. This is the 1.5% rule. I'm going to make money. no. I have the sad duty of informing you that you're about to lose money because your churn, delinquency, delinquency and churn are the real killer of profit. That's where profit dies. And the people that are in this area can afford to pay you six times a year, maybe eight times a year, at best 10 times a year, but not 12 times a year. So a lot of times they're just gonna leave. They're just gonna leave and they're gonna leave, leave the apartment trash. They're not even gonna clean up because they don't care about their credit.
0: And something else that that can be, can further show your point, not just that they're less likely to pay the rent on time every time, and not just that they're more likely to leave it trashed, but just a simple additional part of the math is that, you know, 600 and below the, um, the turn is a higher percentage of the rent amount as well.
1: Exactly. Your cost of maintenance is pretty much standard throughout the U.S. It, may, it might be slightly low in certain areas. Maybe labor is a little bit cheaper in Dallas than, let's say, it is in the San Francisco Bay Area. I get that. But for the most part, your cost of materials in the U.S. is within a 5% range. If it costs you $1,500 to turn a unit and your average rents are 950 well, you're going to, your profit levels are much higher than if the average rents were $550 or $600. Your cost of churn doesn't really change. Also, another thing to keep in mind if people are not able to pay you $700 in rent, right? So the vast majority of the people living in that neighborhood are poor. Unfortunately, one of the sad things in America today is that the poor are receiving the smallest rate increases. And now, in your Performa, what you did was you said, I'm going to hold this for five years or 10 years, and each year I'm going to increase rents by 3%. Well, that same group, the portion that pays below 700, you unfortunately should be putting 1% there, not 3%. Now, when you look at this reform and you adjust it for higher delinquency, so you have to go in there and basically reduce your economic occupancy to account for that delinquency, you've gotta put in a line item for your legal costs, your eviction costs, and then you're gonna say, I'm gonna increase rents by 1%, not 3%. Then when you compare that to a better area, that's at, let's say, $800 in rent, over 10 years, I can tell you, a 100% of the time, that higher end area that is at 800 or 900 in rents will crush the returns of that lower end area.
0: Love it. Love it. Well, we were talking just as we were kind of doing a pre-interview and chatting before we started pushing record, you, you mentioned that you recently were, and by recently, I mean, less than an hour ago. Uh, you were you're chatting with somebody that said, hey, there's this property. It's, it's in a B area. It's a growing fantastic area. Uh, the market is, is really good. Um, we should do this deal. Um, so why don't you take it from there? And uh, if, you, if you have the ability to kind of read off your response, that would be really, really helpful.
1: Yeah. So this is earlier in the day today, right? So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm holding my phone. I'm not going to turn this around because I don't want to mention who it was. This is somebody that's very experienced, is a partner with me, knows his stuff. But I think that he, he threw a deal at me over text messaging. So I looked at the deal and I spent about three or four minutes with the deal. And here's what he said. And here's what I said, right? So I have an opportunity that he'd like, I really liked last year. That's him. Syndication falling apart, $35,000 a door, B minus area. My first red flag is $35,000 a door never equates to B minus area. Uh, stuff selling for 70s a door in this area, right? So he says, throw $10,000 a door in and you know make lots of money. They came back because the partnership is now in worse shape. It has 200 plus units. That's what he said, right? So he's, he's just typing that into his, into his text. So I respond with, send me the text he sends me the apartments.com link. I go ahead and I pull it up on Neighborhood Scout. I have lots of different tools and I'm gonna tell you about them today. But the one that I use for like very quick checking is called NeighborhoodScout.com. So I go in there, I, I plug the address in, and here's my response to him. I looked at the data. The median household income in this neighborhood is about 35K. So this is a C neighborhood, not a B. Very low rate of college degrees, high crime, The biggest challenge is that the people living here can buy a home with only seven years of rent. I actually typed in 6.7 years of rent. So the churn in this area is going to be very high. People are only going to live in this property as long as they're saving to buy a home. So remember that rent ratio concept that you hear about on the internet? It's really important because you don't wanna buy in an area where homes are only six or seven times your annual rent because then everyone is just in an apartment and gathering money to go out and buy a home. But when rents are, you know, but when buying a home is 15 times annual rent or 20 times annual rent, it's going to be really, really difficult for the renters to save enough money for a down payment. So then I said, you know, and churn is really the killer profit. And that's the big reason that I would not go for it. This is a conversation that happened less than two hours ago. You know, what's interesting is, that this is not a new person. He owns 700 units, he's had successful exits. He's had very successful exits, but he was just not taking the time to spend five minutes, the same five minutes that I spent looking on Neighborhood Scout. And you know, he later on texted me back and said, yeah, I, you know, I dug at the data and this sort of made, makes sense to me. But that's a great example of how we can very quickly delude ourselves by looking at what the broker is saying, by looking at an offering memorandum, by looking at a sales flyer. And I see people doing this all the time. And I see very experienced people doing it, unfortunately, far too often.
0: Great, thank you. All right, so let's talk a little bit about proformas then, since, we're, since you've already said you don't like perform, proformas. And uh, we're already talking a little bit about how, you know, we have the, um, even when we have 700 doors, Sometimes we look at the pro forma and we're sold, right? The performers are meant to do something on purpose. And so, how do we uh, pull ourselves back and find a way to really not look at the pro forma, Neil?
1: Um, look at the pro forma. I'm, I'm not suggesting don't look at it, but one of the, so I'm going to give you some red flags in a pro forma, right? So, firstly, when you're buying a property, whether you're buying a one unit or you're buying a 500 unit, you're buying in a neighborhood, not in a city. Okay. Understand that you're buying in a neighborhood. You can't apply the city's demographics to it. Um, Right now, um, Maricopa County is the fastest growing county in the US in population. Okay. So, and Phoenix is right in the middle of Maricopa County. So you could say buying in Phoenix, I'm going to do really well. And my answer is, well, that depends. You're going to do really, really well or really, really badly depending upon what neighborhood in Phoenix you buy in, even though Phoenix has the best population growth in America. So that's that makes my point about neighborhoods are key. Now, when you're looking at that pro forma, right, they're going to have this beautiful picture of the property, and then they're going to say, there's a Whole Foods, there's a Starbucks, there's a, a Macy's, there's a big mall. But what will happen is most of the time, they're going to say these things are two miles away. Well, I'm here to tell you a neighborhood is half a mile. And it is possible and very common in the U.S. for C neighborhoods to be next to an A neighborhood. And so very often what happens is that that broker, what he's doing is he knows that he's in a C neighborhood, but that C neighborhood is sitting next to an A neighborhood, maybe on the other side of the freeway, right? Because often between a C and an A, either it's rail tracks or it's a freeway that separates them. So what he's doing is, he's looking at all these beautiful things, the Starbucks, the Whole Foods, and all this other cool stuff that's on that side of the trail tracks. And, and basically he's applying that to your property. So what you want to do, the first thing you want to see is, pull up five performas. This, this, is, this is good learning, pull up five or 10 different performers, right? Pull them up in 10 tabs on your browser, or in your PDF software, and go to that page where they're showing that, that nice 3D map. Okay, now look at the properties where everything that he's saying is good is more than a mile away. Now find properties where there's plenty of things that are good that are less than a mile away. And what you're looking at is that the less than a mile away property is the one where all that good stuff applies. The more than a mile property is aware this stuff really has nothing to do with you, nothing to do with your property and should not be part of your decision making. So I'm not saying not look at pro forma. I'm saying understand that real estate is not local. It is hyper local. I often give people an example of an area in Columbus where there is, there's, there's an area that is $6,000 in annual income. Six grand, right? So essentially, this is uh, a highly distressed area. Nobody lives there. Nobody pays rent. It's mostly abandoned. That area, the edge of that area is 400 yards away from an area in Columbus that has $182,000 in median income. 400 yards. You go from 6,000. Two hundred and eighty-two thousand. Real estate is hyper local, and when you're looking at performance, you're buying into this whole Starbucks is two miles away, so my property is good. I see this all the time. I see people pitching it to investors. It's really nonsensical, because people, as as an investor, you're paying for a neighborhood. You're not paying for a city.
0: Great, great point. Now let's let me ask you this: If we could have three takeaways Mm -hmm. uh, from this podcast on how to find data. And I know some of them might be specific websites that you use to collect the data. But what, what would the three things be that can be very helpful for not just a active investor like you and me who are running the show, but also a past investor who's going to put their money with somebody like you and me that's running the show?
1: Okay, let's be specific. Let's get to specific. The first site is Google, right? Best site in the world, easiest site in the world to average. You get a property. Okay. And that's this property. Somebody has sent it to you and it's highly recommended it comes from some turnkey provider. That's pretty awesome. And let's say the property is in, in, in some city. I'm, I'm just going to make up the city name. I don't know if this is good or bad. The property is in Philadelphia, right? Do you know the first thing that you should do? It takes you 15 seconds to do this. Into Google type in population Philadelphia, right? Whatever the, the state is. Let's say it's Tucson, Arizona. Population Tucson, Arizona. And you'll get a very nice chart. Right? To me, if you see that that particular city has flatlined for a, for a long time on that population growth chart, that's, that's on Google, or it's downwards, you have to have very specific reasons to invest in it. So if you look at Detroit, it's the city that holds the record for the largest decline in population in history, right? It's it's now, I think, declined for about 47 straight years. And at its peak, it was 1.6 million, and its cap rates were around five. Today, it's at 670,000 people, and its cap rates are between 10 and 15, depending upon the part of the city. So what makes you think that you can go into Detroit, hold something for 10 years, and sell it at this cap rate? It's going to keep The cap rate is going to keep increasing, which means the prices are going to keep dropping. Now, in dollar terms, they might go up. Why? 3% inflation. So real estate goes up everywhere, including Detroit. But the point is, because there's 3% inflation, if you hold for 10 years, the price should go up 30% anyway for you to just stay in place. Anything less than 30%, you're losing money. So people go in and say, yeah, I mean, I bought in Detroit. I sold 10 years later. I made 30%. You made nothing. That was inflation. For you to actually make dollars, the the property's price should have increased by more than 30%, and that's not going to happen in areas where there's population loss. So when I look at places like Dayton, Ohio, when I look at places like Detroit, or I look at some parts, especially the northern parts of St. Louis, I'm saying you're going to lose to inflation. And for you to know that, you need 15 seconds. Population, space, name of city, space, state. And it should immediately tell you if this is, a, some, this is something that you should look at further. And you've only spent 15 seconds so far.
0: Population, the name of the city, and then what was the third thing? The date?
1: Oh, um, no, just, just just the word population, oh, city, the, name of the, state. City, the name of the state. That's Got it, right? It. Population it. Tucson, Arizona. And that should tell you if this is, if this is a city that is growing, right? Great. I'm not saying, this is very important. I'm not saying you can't make money in a city that's losing population. That's silly, right? But- This is like me traveling on a plane. Your plane's going at 500 miles an hour. What would you rather have, 200 miles of headwind or 200 miles of tailwind? When population grows at 2% or greater in a year, that's a 200-mile tailwind for your flight, your five-year flight. When population is not growing at all or is declining, that's a 200-mile headwind for your flight. In one, on the one side, instead of going at 500 miles an hour, you're going to go at 300. On the other side, instead of going at 500 miles an hour, you're now going to go at 700, right? And you haven't even done anything to the property. You haven't even bought it yet, but you've gone, imagine the difference, 700 versus 300. It's all about picking the right places to invest. And a lot of people say stuff, this is, they say a lot of cop-out stuff like, oh no, in all the good places, there's nothing to buy. Really? Really? The United States of America has 2,200 markets of which at any given point of time, hundreds of markets meet the criteria that I'm going to give you today. And you think that there's nothing to buy? There's plenty to buy. There's plenty of reasons to buy. And it's not hard at all to do these things. It's just we want to basically take the approach of let me make the decision instead of saying let data help me make the decision.
0: Love it. Love it. I, I, really wanna, I really like that. It's not something I've heard before. What would you rather have if you're taking, you know, a flight? Would you rather have 200 miles of headwind coming against you, being in a declining market? Or would you rather have the whole 200-mile flight or the whole five-year flight, uh, you know, working with the property of, of having the tailwind, having everything? You're doing the same work, but you're having the market work for you. I love it. It's, it's fantastic. So, number one, you said Google is your friend. What yep. was, what's number two?
1: Number two is a website called city data.com. So, city data.com. So, go in there and plug in whatever city you're looking to buy in. Let's say you're looking to buy in Columbus, Ohio. Plug that in. And it'll give you a lot of statistics, right? And it'll bury you with statistics. City data is awful in that it gives you magnificent statistics, but doesn't tell you how to interpret them. And it gives you way too much, right? So, ignore everything on the page. Focus just on two things. One of them is median home price growth and the other one is income growth, right? So what you're looking for is two things and they're pretty much at the top of the page. So within the first like three or four inches, you're going to see median household growth and and you're going to see median home price and condo growth. So on that page, you're going to see two numbers. It's going to show you what the median household income was in the year 2000, and it's gonna show you what that number is today. And when I say today, it's usually two or three years behind. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. It's, it's not very important. Look at the, the two numbers. And what I want you to do is to make sure that between those two numbers, the difference is 30%, right? Usually it's gonna show you that the median household income in the year 2000 or, and the median household income in 2017. I want there to be a 30% difference between those two dollar numbers. For example, in the in in Columbus, in 2000, the median household income was 37,000, today it's 49. The difference is is about 32%, 33%, right? That's what I want you to look for. If you try that same thing for the other cities in Ohio, let's say you try it for Cincinnati, you try it for Dayton, Ohio, you try it for, um, what else, uh, Connecticut, you're not gonna see that 32, 33% growth in income. Why? Because if you want to charge more rent, your performa is not going to do it for you. Certain things allow you to charge more rent, and the biggest single thing that allows it is income growth. Right? Once again, your performa is just a document. You, you need the underlying you know, strength to allow you to continue to charge 3%, 3%, 3%, 3% more every single year that you're holding a particular property. Doesn't matter if it's single family or multifamily. So you want that 30% growth in in that, that median household income. Right below that, on the next line, is the median house or condo value. You want that over that same time frame. You, you're going to see two numbers, right? I'm going to give you the numbers for Columbus. Columbus, the average home price was $99,000 in the year 2000. So if I type this in for Columbus, I'm going to see 99. And next to that, I'm going to see the 2017 number, which is 141000 right? So that number is about 42% apart. And what I ask people to do is, if you're going to go look in an area, in a city, make sure that number for home prices is 40% off. So population, you want it to grow by 20% over the last 15, 17 years. And that's Google. When you're looking at income, you want it to grow by 30%. And if population grows by 20, income grows by 30, guess what, home prices are gonna grow by 40. And they often grow by 50, or 60, or 70, or 80. And if they do, well, good for you, because that city is doing well. But at a minimum, make sure that there's a 40% growth in those home prices. These three numbers are really what supports the line in your pro forma that says annual rent increase. There's two more, and let me give you those two. We have time for two more? Yep. Okay. That On the same page, scroll down and there's a table and that table says crime. It's a big table. Ignore all of it. Go to the last line of that table. Go to the last line. It's blue. The only line on that table that's blue. On the left side, you'll see, you know, basically it's, it's 15 years of crime in that area, in that city, right? You can, you can remember, you don't need to type in Columbus, Ohio. You can even type a zip code in. You can type in a particular zip code that you're buying in and let you look at that particular area. You can even type an address in, it'll give you some data for that area. So when you're looking at that table, right, that blue line, what you want to do is make sure that as the years have passed in whatever city you're in crime is decreasing, it's going down. So guess what? You want the number on the left to be higher than the number on the right. Cause the number on the right is, is recent where the number on the left is older. It might be like 10 or 15 years old. Well, you want higher crime, now going towards lower crime. Why? Because rent increases are much, much easier to make in areas where crime is decreasing because demand is almost always higher than supply in areas where crime decreases. And it's, it's only natural, right? More people want to live there because crime's going down. People understand this. They know this, if they live in that city, they know that Hyde Park has lower crime than South Shore. They they absolutely know it. So over time, more people are going to move from Hyde, Hyde Park to, to South Shore, and you're going to benefit and start looking like a hero to your investors. So, and then the number on the right, that number on the right, the most recent number, make sure it's below 500, 500. This is the City Data Crime Index. What I found is cities above 500, tend to fluctuate in terms of the home prices, tend to have more challenges when they hit recessions. Nothing wrong with cities above 500. One of my favorites, Orlando, is at 550. But you know why I invest in Orlando? Because compared to 15 years ago, Orlando's crime has decreased a spectacular amount. So it used to be one of the crime-ridden cities in America in 2000. Now it's a lot better. It's going in the right direction. So even though it's not quite at 500, I'm okay with Orlando. So that's the concept.
0: let me ask you a question, and, and this is just because I've heard some things, and, and I'm hearing what you're saying now, and I really want to know how they correlate with each other. And what I want to know, and I, and I hate to be in a rabbit hole if, if this puts us there, but there has been a few cities and states out there that specifically decriminalize certain things in order to show a better crime rate. The question would be just how that affects this when you're looking at city-data.
1: That's one of my favorite things to talk about, by the way, I'm glad you asked that question. So there are two ways to reduce crime. One is to invest in healthcare and education. Healthcare and education tend to reduce crime, right? So Columbus is a great example of a city that actually invested in healthcare back in the 90s, much more so than any other city in Ohio. And we're now, they're now basically benefiting from that, right? So that the, both the healthcare and education levels are up. And so it takes a while to do that. Then there's cities that essentially take the, the play with the numbers approach or lock them up approach. You know, One city that's well known to have done this recently is, is Chicago, right? So basically what Chicago did was spend its money on police officers and on jails and basically locking up thousands and thousands of people. Now on city data, In that last line, you're going to very easily be able to tell the difference. When you look at Columbus from left to right, you will see a smooth decline in crime. Every single year, crime goes down. Smooth declines happen when education levels go up. Now, try zip codes in South Chicago, for example, right? And you're going to notice crime is very high in 2002, and then all of a sudden tends to decrease like by sharply, like sharply decreases, and then stays that way for about one or two years, and then spikes up again. And this time when it spikes up, it actually is higher than it used to be before, before the decline. And then it goes along for, well, that way for a while, and then spikes down again. So in those cases, either the numbers are being manipulated because the definition of what constitutes crime has changed over the last 15 years from a data gathering perspective, Or what they're doing is basically they're doing in a a single quarter, they're locking up 5,000 people and and putting them in jail. Well, when those people eventually will come out, right? And you'll notice that the times when crime goes down is right before an election for mayor or a general election. So what they're doing is they want to say that crime has decreased. So about six months before, they basically lock up a massive number of people, right? And they, they say, oh, crime has gone down. Well, it really hasn't because you haven't addressed the root cause of crime, which is unemployment and lack of education. And so when you see cities, uh, Memphis is a great example of a city that's basically using the lockup method, you're going to notice it bounces up, bounces down, bounces out. It's very ziggy-zaggy. And now you can tell that that city really, that their their focus is not on getting rid of crime. Their focus is on just getting rid of it today, getting rid of it for the next year, because some politician is screaming at them. Right, or they're getting bad press from the public, or the police department is being demonized. So, so smooth reduction in crime is the one that tells you that this is real and actual reduction.
0: Love it! Thank you so much for answering that, and um, really, really appreciate that. So, number one, googling it. Number two, city-data.com. What's the third one you can leave with us to make sure that we're investing in a place that's really gonna save ourselves the money
1: well it's got to be jobs right it has to be jobs right that the biggest driver of long term wealth is job growth not jobs but job growth so this one's a little bit harder but and I, I know we're on a podcast where we need to take care of the audio folks as well so i'm going to say it exactly it's dub 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 dot department of numbers and that's d e p t right not the full word department, d-e-p-t-of numbers with an s dot com slash employment slash metros. Let me say it one more time. d-e-p-t-of-o-f numbers with an s dot com slash employment slash metros. This URL gives you job data in the US, brand new, usually only two months old. So you've got absolutely brand spanking new data and it's giving it to you by Metro. All you have to do, and there's a little bit of work here to do, okay? So this is not one of those magical needle 30-second things. You have to put in a little bit of work here. And the work is first sorted So by by the, the row that shows you the percent change in the last 12 months. Why? Because you want to invest in cities where at least 2% new jobs were created in the last 12 months. So sort by that column, and you're going to see cities in the U.S. that have 6% job growth, 7%. Who, all these people, naysayers, talking about the fact that this cycle is over and there's no, uh, there's no uh, future home price appreciation. Could you please go look at this page and explain to me that all these cities that have 5% job growth, how is it possible for real estate prices to st- slow down in those areas? It is not possible. One of the best rules of thumb I can give you is when a city has 3% job growth for at least one year, you know, preferably for two years, all kinds of crazy things happen to real estate prices. They don't go up 3%. They start going up double digits, 10%, 12%, 13%. Why? Because that 3% job growth is not ever being met by 3% supply. And now, all these people that have jobs and and all these people that have better jobs and all these people that have higher salaries because the city really is tight on jobs, right? Tight on employment. All of these people are looking to buy. And so they drive up the prices of homes, which allows you to increase rents. You cannot, if there's 10% home price increase, you cannot increase rents by 10%. That's not how life works. But often, if there's 10% increase in home prices in a year, which is great, you can increase rents by 5%. In the rental market, 2% 2% is long-term, you know, that, that's the long-term median. If you look at the last 50 years, 2% is, is normal. 3%, you're very excited. 4%, you're partying. 5%, you're dancing naked in the street. There's plenty of places in the U.S. where if you wish, you can dance naked in the streets. And you can get that information from this page. My only request to you is if it's a small city, don't make your decisions based on one month because we could have had amazon open a new warehouse there and for one month the city looks glorious and the next month it could be crap so copy paste the page into excel name the t- tab april 2019 come back two more times look through the tabs if that city continuously stays at the very top of the list 4% 5% even 3% job growth in cities is incredible incredibly profitable for real estate then pick those cities by doing what I just told you, you've given yourself the 200 mile mile an hour tailwind. So your plane now is going to go at 700 miles an hour for the same exact quality of property. If you had bought it in an area that doesn't have this, your plane would be going at 300 miles an hour.
0: Absolutely love that. Let me ask you a question based on the job growth. And uh, 3% being great, you know, 4% being incredible, 2% being workable and helpful. But um, the question would be, well, number one, you kind of answered it by saying, you know, Amazon comes in, it's just one month, all of a sudden it spikes up. Uh, but the big question that is still in my mind is wondering what you think about a, a, a place that has even way bigger than 4% job growth. Is that actually a scary thing to look at? Or is it something that you can't continue to think that's going to keep happening? Like, I guess, sum it up for me. Um, what happens when you see something skyrocket well above 3 or 4%? And how you should look at that?
1: I ignore it. I honestly do not look at cities that are 5% or 6% job growth. One phenomenon that I see consistently is there are two cities that are very often at the top of that list. One is called Midland, Texas. The other one is Odessa, Texas. Both of these are shale oil cities. Almost 100% of the employment in these cities is is, is in in the shale oil industry. So if the price of shale goes beyond $75. Now you have 10% job growth on an annualized basis, which is ridiculous, right? And then if the price of oil falls below $50 a barrel, the next month you're going to see negative job growth and they'll be at the bottom of the list. So my advice to you is that if there are cities that consistently are above 4 or 5% in terms of job growth, there is something weird going on there that you may not understand. If you really want to go in there, you need to fly in there and spend three or four days understanding why they have that kind of spectacular job growth number. Also, it could be a very small city, right? So in a small city, 100 jobs could be 5%. My suggestion, don't go into cities that small going to cities that you know the, this particular map is showing you 500 jobs a month 600 jobs a month 800 jobs a month then one employer is not really going to move the needle one and you're going to look at three months anyway right so that that way you'll have three snapshots so to me it is there's usually something wrong when a city starts hitting 5% job growth
0: very very interesting glad i asked that question let me ask you this one final question Um, it's probably something that you have a lot of information behind and it's really talking about the future. So what I'm saying is there's some places that right now are having, when you look at certain websites and I don't have them queued up and in front of me, unfortunately, when you look at certain websites, it might show that some of these places were at one time, um, here and it's showing that there's not people moving there. It's also it's also showing that uh, that there's more apartments being built than can be absorbed. And so it's showing like maybe five years from now you have actually today you might have five percent on average for your uh, vacancy, but in in five years from today, it's showing that. Based on who's not moving there and how, um, what, uh, uh, what was the uh, who's not moving there, and based on how many properties they're putting out, and based on how likely that people can't fill them, that even today might be a five percent vacancy rate. In five years from now, the this website says that they should be at a twelve percent vacancy rate. How do you approach that situation if you're looking at an area like that?
1: I think, um, firstly, I don't believe that that 12% vacancy number would work, and maybe maybe these are just made-up numbers, but it it is very likely that a very significant portion of the United States is going to have a a higher vacancy in three years than it does today. We've built a lot. Basically, if you look at 2015, 16, 17, 18, we built 300,000 units each year, which is not a large number, by the way, it's, 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 it's a fairly small number, and almost all of it was class A. But having said that, the one in the 15, the 2015, those 300,000 units would exert downward pressure on all the B, B uh, properties in that area, and some of those would fall to C. Right, And each year, more of those Bs would fall to C because there's pressure coming from the new uh, Class A construction. So over four or five or six years, a significant number of the B's become C's. And when they become C, they create competition in the C market or in the uh, workforce market where a lot of people are buying these days, they're basically buying the B minuses and the C's. And so over time, the pressure keeps growing and that pressure can lead to a reduction in occupancy. So I'm a believer that occupancy is going to be lower in the next two or three years. How do you deal with that? Okay, so let me tell you this. Let, let's say we're talking about Atlanta, right? Right. So um, you look at Atlanta and you go Atlanta's occupancy today is uh, 96% and forecasts are showing I'm going to be at 94, right? So should I be worried about that? Yes, but it's 2%. Do you know that at the same time in Atlanta in a market that's very tight today, there are still properties at 80% and there are thousands of properties at 100 So this 2% or 3% decline that we are talking about can be overcome in 20 or 30 different ways. One of them is keeping an eye on the leasing, right? When you were at Rod event, I was teaching something known as LASL. It is a revenue management system, right, that basically tracks leads and appointments and shows and, and leases, And that system by itself on smaller properties can boost your occupancy five, six, or even 7% beyond the market. So my message for people is this. There's no conceivable reason in my mind for you to stop buying properties just because there's going to be a 2% occupancy decline in that marketplace over the next five or six years. Competent asset managers can move the needle by as much as 5%. And I'm not saying you're killing your property manager. I'm not saying you're doing some magical things. I'm saying just through competency, making the right decisions, you have 5% in your hands. And I don't think most of the markets in the US are actually going to decline more than 2%. Okay,
0: and what about when, I, and I don't, wanna, I don't wanna specifically talk about the, the market because we're still doing a lot of due diligence on it right now. And so I don't wanna you know, spoil it. We're looking at a lot of markets and just like what you said, most of the markets, most of America shows uh, that it's going to be declining a little bit over the next two, three, or four years. Uh, it was just this one specific area that has a higher probability of having the vacancy rate increase three times faster than the rest of the nation's average. So how, how do you look at that?
1: I look at it very carefully. I think that there. are Data isn't a way to get around things. Data is, at its best, an early warning system that allows you to make good decisions. What you can't do is use data to say, well, you know, I found this other piece of data that suggests that the the vacancy rate is not going to spike by 3x the US average in this area. I can always find data that supports any argument, right? Any argument can be supported through data because there's so much out there. In my mind, the, the answer to your question is, is, is a really honest one. And that is, if that data says vacancy is going to spike, there's a greater than 50% chance that it will. And you need to be prepared for that. Maybe you need to keep a larger operating budget. Maybe you need to reduce the, the price that you're paying for this property. Um, maybe you need to let your investors know that you might not be able to do 8% you know, distributions. Maybe you'll do six. I think all of those are prudent what data can't do is help you find something magical that is not going to make that vacancy increase happen. That's not how data works.
0: Love it. Love it. All right. Really, really, really appreciate you. This, was, this has been a great interview. Um, one of my favorites, and I, I'd love to just keep bringing you on. Every time I meet you, it's always a pleasure. Every time we meet in person, you always have a lot of information like this. Uh, for everybody. And, and I, one of my favorite things about you is how willing you are to share the data and not just willingness, to be honest. It's you're passionate and excited to share the things that you're studying and learning and, and you want other people to know it. So I really appreciate that about you. I want to make sure somebody said a comment. We've been getting a lot of comments on the, on the Facebook um, none of them are questions, so we can we can skip that. But it's just pretty much um, ten or fifteen people just saying this is amazing. A lot of a lot of good info. Thanks for sharing this. And what what's really cool about it, Neil, is that some of the people that are saying thank you for sharing this, they are specifically multifamily influencers th- themselves. So I can tell what kind of content we're bringing out right now is not just content for. For just the people brand new and learning, it's content that those people that are strong and they've been doing this for a while are still learning things just based on the comments that I'm reading right now. So well, thank Adam, you for, yeah. I
1: want to give you one more thing before I leave. So let's do it. I put together about a three hour course, which it which has I think we did about the first twenty or thirty minutes of that course right now. And the course is also free. I am extremely passionate about giving data away I, because I believe that data is universal in the internet age. That is my mantra. So the course, which is also free, is on Udemy.com. That's u-d-e-m-y.com/slash/realfocus. That's Udemy.com/slash/realfocus. I don't believe in pitches. I will never pitch anything on a course. So it's a pitchless course. It's three hours. Today we talked about cities the course also talks about neighborhoods. When you get down to a thousand yard radius, how do you tell if that neighborhood is the right neighborhood to invest in? What are all the different metrics? Where do you find them? It's all in that course. It's given away for free. In fact, everything that I teach in that course, you're welcome to take and teach it to other people. There is no licensing agreement. I would love for it to be distributed to more people. If you're a meetup group owner, take it, teach it. If you improve it, make me a promise that you will share that improvement back with me. It's udemy.com slash real focus.
0: I hope you got value out of today's episode. And before I let you go, if you did get a lot of value, please feel free to hop over to iTunes and let us know your thoughts and impressions. I love it when I get five-star ratings and reviews from our listeners. And so if if you want to do that, I'd be super, super grateful. Thank you so much for listening to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. And if you got value from this episode of the podcast, please take the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Give us a written rating and review. We'd really, really appreciate it. I'm going to let you go. But until next time, think outside the box.